Welcome to Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History, where we put the pedal to the metal when it comes to uncovering the forbidden and the suppressed. I'm Michael Hoffman. Thank you for joining me today. Our website is at revisionisthistory.org. I'm the author of 10 books, and you can acquire those books, plus our 122 issues of our newsletter, also titled Revisionist History, and uh, many recordings and much information for your uh, perusal and enlightenment, we hope. Today we're going to be talking about revisionist historical epistemology. What is the epistemology of revisionist history? Well, epistemology is a $50 word for theory of knowledge. How do we approach knowledge? And uh, for many conservatives, revisionism and revisionist history, those terms are kind of swear words because they believe that the past, especially the past that they happen to honor or valorize, is something that's cast in concrete and we know all we need to know about it, and those who come along to offer alternative versions of it, or indeed new information which will expand human knowledge, uh, they are infradig. They're outside the Western civilized approach uh, to the canon of our memory, our literature, and our history. And of course, that's obviously wrong on its face because history isn't frozen. It can't be frozen uh, any more than life can be frozen. Uh, we don't have a fixation on everything that's happening around us because it's constantly changing. And the same thing with history. If you're a good historian, you're using primary research, you're looking for diaries, you're looking for letters. You're getting into archives that have either been lost or have been classified as secret in some degree or other. You're up in the attics of your grandparents or your neighbors or the archives and libraries across the street or across the continent. And as a result of that type of digging and excavation, new information is brought forward. And that's true about any personality, any event in history is subject to revisionism to being revised based on new information that comes forward. And that's very obvious to me as being absolutely essential to the struggle for discovering truth. And so how the right-wing conservatives have decided that revisionist history is a swear word and it's a product of uh, leftist uh, reds or some type of subversives is just incomprehensible to me. Uh, I, in fact, so much that is frozen in history by the establishment, by the corporate media, needs to be revised because it's plainly wrong. And I think of, for example, the uh, regime of Elizabeth I, Queen Elizabeth I, who is a hero to, again, like Winston Churchill, who we covered in the very first episode of Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History. This is episode number two. And uh, Elizabeth I, like Churchill, is this icon, this idol that's been set up and uh, almost beyond reproach and with absurd kinds of, um, of canonizations. For example, uh, there are movies uh, that were done by a director named Shakur Kapoor, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. He did the movie Elizabeth in 1998, and then he followed that up with Elizabeth, the Golden Age in 2007. 
and their uh, absurd, absolutely absurd nonsense uh, written, uh, anti-Catholic drivel uh, written by uh, Michael Hurst in the first case and then co-written by Hurst and a man who's alleged to be a Catholic, William Nicholson, for Elizabeth the Golden Age. I mean, these are basically uh, cartoons. In, in the in the movie Elizabeth, uh, they cast uh, characters, uh, very large women, to play the part, for example, of um, Mary Tudor, who's known as Bloody Mary, and uh, the Spanish ambassador is this uh, strange-looking fellow with an elongated mouth and uh, piercing eyes. Uh, Philip II is shown to be uh, some type of a cripple who minces along with these little footsteps down the hall. Practically everybody in Spain and around his court is miserably unhappy, when, whereas Elizabeth is shown to be a real human when her murderous uh, Secret Service uh, head, the chief of her Secret Service, Sir Francis Walsingham, he gazes on her with, with uh, admiration as she talks this nonsense about how liberal she is and how she will not make windows into her uh, subject's souls. That Elizabeth was a religious dictator as much as any, she was, of course, Protestant, as much as any Catholic monarch, and uh, killed and, and tortured to death Catholics, and actually deserves the epithet bloody Elizabeth more than Mary Tudor. And, and, it's, and, and it's a case of being specific and detailed-oriented here, because Mary Tudor burned people, and that doesn't really involve blood per se, if you want to be strictly accurate from a pathological perspective, whereas Elizabeth uh, used the drawn and quartering method, where uh, you're nearly drawn and uh, you're nearly hanged, uh, and then um, prior to you dying by hanging, uh, the asphyxiation is cut short, you're cut down, and then uh, you're put uh, on a table, and a, uh, I won't call him a surgeon, but a barber uh, or, or a butcher, uh, whichever you prefer, comes along, and then cuts open your body and draws out your intestines while you're alive, uh, and you're in excruciating pain, and then after you've had enough of that torture and pain and blood everywhere, then your genitals are cut off and you're still alive. You're kept alive. If, if it's a good butcher for Queen Elizabeth I, then he knows how to keep you alive. There's going, you're going to be bleeding out, but they, they understood, had a fairly good handle on that. Her um, Elizabeth's uh, semi-official or de facto torturer, Topcliffe, was an expert on how to keep these people alive for as long as possible to maximize their misery and agony and suffering. And then um, you're quartered, meaning that your legs are cut off, your arms are cut off, and presumably you expire at that point. The name associated with Elizabeth, the nickname, is uh, Good Queen Bess. And then Mary Tudor, who burned uh, Protestants, is Bloody Mary. And someone can say, well, it's a distinction without a difference. I mean, Mary was, you know, uh, it was horrible that she was uh, burning people of conscience, and, and I agree with that. Whereas Elizabeth, and this is the alibi that's given, as they were enemies of the state, they were trying to overthrow her, they were part of <coughs> numerous assassination plots against her. And um, that's just the cover story. You know, of course, she killed uh, Catholic priests and she killed Roman Catholics who were in any way obstreperous in terms of literary pursuits. Uh, the most uh, 
outrageous of her uh, executions was of the uh, Catholic poet who, with whom she had been a friend when he was at Oxford, and that's Edmund Campion. And Campion was basically just destroyed because he was a better writer, a better poet, and perhaps in many ways a better Christian than many of the Protestant intellectuals and theologians who were around Elizabeth, and so a great threat uh, to her regime on the basis of his brilliance and nothing else. He, he was never implicated in any violence or overthrow or or anything like that. It's the same thing with the uh, with the translators of the Rames Bible. Uh, the uh, the Rames Bible preceded the King James Bible in English. The Rames New Testament was published by Catholics uh, in 1582. They were exiles. You often hear about the Marian exiles, meaning Protestant dissidents who had to flee England when Mary Tudor came to the throne. But you seldom hear about the Catholic exiles who had to flee when Elizabeth came to the throne. And so the Rheims New Testament was translated in France uh, at Rheims and, uh, and then circulated in England. And again, we hear about outlawed Bibles outlawed by the Catholics who didn't want anyone to read the Bible, particularly in uh, the vulgar languages, meaning you know the, the common parlance of the people. Well, pr- before the King James Bible was published in 1582, out came the Rames. And who, were, who was one of the main people to interdict that? Sir Francis Walsingham. Uh, who's typically shown to be a kind of ruthless protector of Elizabeth against the hook-nosed Catholics, the kinky-haired Spaniards. You know, there's a lot of racial subtexts, uh, in, particularly in these those these two movies that I started our broadcast with, Elizabeth, the 1998 film, and Elizabeth, the Golden Age. Uh, almost absurdly so, and yet the 1998 film was critically acclaimed it had, I don't know how many, numerous nominations for Best, best Picture in 1998, and then followed up with the uh, sequel in 2007. One was as bad as the other. And so um, the revisionist epistemology looks at these icons and looks at these idols and challenges them on the basis of the documentary record. And so we cannot have a commitment to confirmation bias, which is what afflicts both the left and the right including favorite historians of the left and the right. What is confirmation bias? It is that you have a bias about a particular epoch in history, let's say in terms of the Elizabethan age, that this was everything the propagandists say that it was a marvelous age of of Shakespeare. And uh, we can't really include Christopher Marlowe in there, who was, in my opinion, at least the equal of Shakespeare, because he was murdered on the orders of uh, Queen Elizabeth's uh, British Secret Service. I, It's my hypothesis that she was directly involved in that in giving, in giving the okay, but certainly uh, it was the English Secret Service that arranged it. He was killed by Ingram Fraser in what was made to look like a bar tavern brawl, and he was stabbed through the eye, which is a symbolic way of conveying that he had seen too much. And indeed, in some of his plays, like Tamerlane, it was uh, only a thinly veiled, Tamerlane was a thinly veiled representation of Elizabeth, Elizabeth herself as a tyrant, and that couldn't be tolerated. And then in uh, in Dr. Faustus, again, it was a thinly veiled uh, portrait of her astrologer royal, uh, John Dee, 
And here's a, an alleged, you know, Protestants of this day and, and Calvinists and people celebrate Elizabeth I. And yet she had on her staff and consulted regularly. He wasn't only guilty of astrology, which was uh, a commonplace uh, supposed science at that time, really a pseudoscience. But some people could offer some uh, exculpatory uh, venues for understanding astrology and its position in that day. However, John Dee was involved in, in raising spirits, which who he, you know, is a very clever man, who he called angelic. Uh, you know, so he's, he's like Saul calling up the Witch of Endor, and this is supposedly in this straight-laced uh, Protestant orthodoxy that Elizabeth was at the head of, vastly superior to uh, what Rome was involved with. Well, Rome at that time in the Renaissance, and I wrote a 723-page book about this called The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome, was deeply involved in the occult, but so was the uh, Protestant regime of Queen Elizabeth, although uh, Rome were really the pioneers of that, beginning uh, at the Council of Florence in the mid-15th century, as far back as that, and then really it gained firm purchase under Alexander VI, the notorious Borgia Pope, but his notoriety has been limited by the uh, propagandists solely to his sexual adventures and the many children he had, and, and two of his children were notorious as murderers, and various Catholic apologists will say, well, he never touched the deposit of the faith. Well, he protected and lifted the proscriptions against the leading sorcerer, Catholic sorcerer of the day, which was Count Pico della Mirandola. So if that counts for anything. And on another time, we'll do a show on on the uh, the crimes of uh, and heresies of uh, Pope Alexander VI, uh, most notoriously in the judicial execution of the servant of God, uh, Savonarola in Florence. But so you had um, John Dee at the center of Elizabeth's regime, and uh, this is really a problem, but the thing is, is that most people don't know about it. And so Protestants who are uh, really big on Elizabeth, they don't have to deal with it, they don't have to explain it, and they don't even have to study it. But Marlowe, in uh, his play, The the uh, Tragedy of Dr. Faustus, uh, that was a thinly veiled uh, characterization of John Dee. John Dee uh, pops up again, The Tempest. And Shakespeare, you know, is much friendlier to uh, the Tudor monarchs. Um, you know, he certainly took the side in his plays against the Plantagenet, the traditional Catholic dynasty that had ruled England up until reign of Richard III. And so, um, you know, in spite of the fact that there are many Catholics who suggest that uh, Shakespeare was a crypto-Catholic himself, and that's a debate for another time. But uh, so he portrays uh, John Dee as Prospero in a much more, uh, uh, much more friendly and uh, benevolent portrayal of this magician. And again, it's obvious that it's Dee, but nothing uh, like um, how uh, Marlowe uh, has him. And so Marlowe is killed, assassinated uh, by the English Secret Service in a very grisly manner. And this is just one of the many crimes that were committed under Elizabeth. And of course, the whole idea, you know, again, returning to these films, but also, I mean, Paul Johnson wrote a ridiculous biography of Elizabeth. In fact, I, I would say that 90% of the biographies of Elizabeth have something of the comical or the, or the farcical about them. Uh, because of the 
uh, obsequious uh, adoration of her, in spite of the fact that they may occasionally, in order to make their argument stronger uh, in her favor, occasionally bring in something that, you know, a small peccadillo of hers. But so confirmation bias is you proceed from the standpoint that, oh, I love Queen Elizabeth I, and um, (laughs) Catholics are beginning to uh, disparage her, or I need to burnish her reputation more. So let's find everything that's in her favor, and let's exclude most of those things which reveal her to be other than uh, the very highest and finest and best of the monarchs of England. And people bring that to all kinds of historical research. I mean, it's not just uh, the the, um, there isn't just a proprietary relationship between uh, Protestant chauvinists and confirmation bias. I mean, I can think of, we did a, a revisionist history study in our newsletter of a uh, right-wing myths with an endless shelf life, we called it. And we talked about the myths that uh, a horrible historian by the name of Hiller Belloc and another fellow, Ramsey, had uh, tall tales they had told about Oliver Cromwell. And uh, we took those down pretty heavily. And also, again, the canonization of Charles I, the Stuart monarch, the son of James I, James VI of Scotland, and James I, because, of course, Elizabeth died without issue, and therefore Mary, Queen of Scots, who she murdered, uh, her son came to the throne. And actually, Mary, Queen of Scots, had a much stronger claim to the throne of England than Elizabeth did, and that's why she was judicially murdered as well. And it's interesting that when she was about to be executed, she was handed a Bible. It was a, uh, I believe it was a Geneva Bible, and she rejected it, and she said, I will have my own Bible here. And so she requested the Rames New Testament. And it's very interesting to me because there were big differences in the two translations. And also, of course, in the commentary, uh, the commentary in both uh, of those Bibles is uh, very polemical, to say the least. So we have Belloc and Ramsey with their confirmation bias about Oliver Cromwell, real nonsense about Cromwell, nonsense about Charles I. And, I mean, their writing is just suffused with this prejudice. And so, therefore, it's really just preaching to the choir because it actually undercuts the appeal of their uh, argument because it's pretty much prima facie partisan. And the same thing happens in the revisionist history movement of revising this liturgy that's that's come up. No history should have a liturgy. There should be no historical epic that is sacred in terms of what we talked about at the top of the broadcast, that you can't revise it based on new information. And yet, one of the most uh, destructive examples of that is the history of World War II, where if you cross a line concerning World War II, for example, the the goodness of Churchill and Roosevelt, but yet if you try to get into what we got into in episode one of Michael Hoffman's Revisionist History in the real record of Winston Churchill as as this monster equivalent to Hitler in terms of mass murder, and you know, right, right there, when I've said that, probably some people are going to turn off the podcast because you know that's that's their religion, that's their dogma, and I'm anti-dogma, and I really um, probably will only appeal to those who are also anti-dogmatic, or at least have that other essential part, which is so important to um, history, which is the childlike element of curiosity. Without curiosity. 
a lifelong curiosity, what people call lifelong learner, we die internally a little bit every day. And so if people are curious, that, that even if they have a strong predilection for Winston Churchill or Elizabeth I, but they're curious to say, well, let's see where Hoffman's going with this. Does he have something to back up his rather outrageous statements? You know, so I'm going to keep an open mind here for, for a certain period of time, which is all I ask for. And, uh, and, and so the enemy in terms of the history of World War II is on both sides. In other words, there's this liturgy about, you know, World War II, the Allies, the good war. And then along have come revisionist historians of various hues, the legitimate ones um, and the ones who are uh, really so far out in their, <clears throat> in their feeling that, uh, for example, that Hitler has been wronged and, and that the charges against him have been exaggerated and that he wasn't so bad after all. And, you know, what that really, I wrote a book called Adolf Hitler, Enemy of the German People, and I got death threats and his acolytes who are far more numerous than you may imagine because the corporate media portrays his acolytes as being of a certain kind of outlandish, uh, swastika-wearing goose-steppers in the streets. But actually, some of them are in important positions in the American corporate world, uh, have a good deal of money, and are much more sophisticated than that. And they have a considerable amount of influence, I would say, in what's called the paleo right wing. But it's very much undercover. You only get hints of it. And those people who are not known publicly as aficionados of Hitler or his defenders have done a great deal of damage to my work and our independent history truth mission uh, because they um, are very angry about what I brought out in the book Adolf Hitler, Enemy of the German People. And I've had people say to me, um, why are you doing another Hitler book? I mean, we understand that Hitler was evil, but there's like, you know, 500 books that are exposing Hitler. Well, of course, I wouldn't write the 501st book if all I was doing was regurgitating what those 500 other books have done. I mean, what I've done is in the book is I've gone into areas where I feel that most people, most historians or biographers of Hitler have neglected. And just very briefly as a digression, for example, uh, the murders that he committed against his own former followers in what's called the Night of the Long Knives. And where you have to, where you can really do damage to the Hitler cult is when you look at how he gained, uh, how he gained popularity among the German people. And by the way, my argument is that he had popularity among a minority of the German people. He, for example, he never won an election with the majority of uh, the vote on the part of uh, the, of of the Germans. But still, he certainly was popular as a uh, as a kind of demagogue. And one reason, you know, we all know that the Versailles Treaty was, um, you know, so out of proportion, out of scale. Uh, people were very worried at the time the Versailles Treaty came about that it would create a sense of uh, of wounding among the Germans that they would feel severely wronged by the Versailles Treaty. And that, of course, is what Hitler exploited, the sense of being unfairly uh, victimized by the Versailles Treaty. But what's overlooked here is, and I would say it was even a bigger factor in Hitler's popularity, 
and that was the campaign against mammonism, in other words, money worship, which resonated strongly with what was a majority Christian population, majority Lutheran, minority uh, Catholic, but nonetheless steeped in Christianity of the day and with a great deal of preaching about against the money power. In other words, the financialization of the economy and uh, specifically Gottfried Fetter, uh, who was one of the first national socialists, and he was the leader of the campaign against usury. And Fetter understood usury, as I understand it, in a book I wrote called Usury in Christendom, The Mortal Sin That Was and Now Is Not. And my understanding is the understanding of the Roman Catholic Church for more than its first 1,000 years. People are always saying we should get back to the early church. Are they willing to get back to the early church's biblical definition of usury, which is the renting of money at any rate of interest? And, and people say, oh, no, no, it's, it's, uh, it's extortionate interest. Well, no, I'm sorry. It's like saying that you can go to a prostitute if she's a discount prostitute and charges $50, it would be wrong to go to her if she charged 500 and that's the same situation ethic that's at work uh, with trying to nullify the original biblical proscriptions against usury. And uh, if you're interested, you can explore that in my book, Usury in Christendom. Fetter had this, this understanding that was absolutely correct, and he basically staked his life and career on it. And he was a fool in this sense that he actually thought that Adolf Hitler was a sincere campaigner against the money power. And to this day, many of the fans of Adolf Hitler believe that myth. And so what happened was, and this is what I bring out in my book with documentation is, is that as soon as Hitler was named chancellor in 1933, he completely betrayed the anti-usury, anti-mammon movement. What he did was he shifted from the Judaic bankers and financial people over to the, what he called, Aryan, so-called Aryan bankers. He was as much in bed with those Aryan usurers as he, as the Weimar Republic had been with all the other usurers, whether they were Judaic or Gentile or not. Uh, as part of that, he was really concerned about Gregor Strasser, who was uh, faithful to Fetter's uh, campaign. Now, Fetter was internally exiled uh, he wasn't killed. It basically broke his heart, and he died uh, several years after he had been exiled. And basically died of a broken heart, having been betrayed in his entire campaign, as was betrayed by Hitler, as was the aspirations of the German people to have a usury-free uh, economy. And then uh, Fetter was 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 not did not have persona. Uh, and the charisma of Strasser. Strasser had really, in the 1920s, late 1920s, been instrumental in winning over northern Germany uh, to the, in, in spite of the fact that he was a Roman Catholic himself and his brother a priest, uh, he had tremendous appeal to Prussia and northern Germany, and he, he won those areas over. He was superb organizer for the National Socialist Party. And uh, when he saw that Hitler was uh, crushing the anti-usury movement, betraying it, exiling Fetter, he, withdraw, he withdrew from the uh, NSDAP, the National Socialist Party, known as the Nazi Party. But Hitler wasn't good with that. He always feared Strasser. Now, Hitler's acolytes will say that Strasser was plotting. It was always a, he was always a, a, a possible menace threat to Hitler. That's not true. Strasser had a degree in pharmacy. He went back to his... Uh, 
Uh, he should have fled the country uh, as his brother Otto did. Otto was a different man from Gregor. He was far more uh, left-wing. Uh, certainly, Gregor was left-wing. He, he never wanted to have a war with Russia, and he also wanted to ally with people of color in the third world to unite against the banking system as a whole, which he understood was... Uh, you know, you not, we weren't going to just scapegoat Judaic people. That the banking system was much more than the, you know, than the Rothschilds. There were so many Gentile, non-Judaic greed heads who were involved in it, and scapegoating Judaic people as the sole source of that. Uh, Strasser was opposed to that, so he had, uh, you know, he had a lot going for himself. But he did withdraw. He should have fled, and he didn't. And Hitler had him shot along with. Um, several other uh, of his uh, former comrades. So that was one thing that I wanted to bring in in terms of uh, new information on Adolf Hitler, enemy of the German people. So that's a, uh, that's a revisionist work, and there's much more to it, but that's, again, a subject for another broadcast, because today we're talking about giving examples of the, re- the revisionist campaign for the unique epistemology, which I, you know, I'm influenced in terms of epistemology. I think that one of the major epistemologists of the 20th century was someone known as Charles Hoy Fort. His middle name is H-O-Y. I mention that because it's a common name, and you can easily look him up when you have his middle name. He wrote four books. The first one is not as interesting, at least not to me, but the last three are, and I recommend them. And he was a person who uh, was interested in the uses of measurement, which is so important, whether we're talking about medicine, history, physics, what yardstick do you apply to reality and how circumscribed is your yardstick? Fort came up with the idea, famous among Fortians, as they're known, that you measure a circle beginning anywhere. And he was one of the first to start to hint that scientism, uh, in other words, where science is perverted into a quasi-religion, and therefore it's known as scientism as opposed to the pure pursuit of knowledge, which is what science, uh, coming from the Latin word for for knowledge, scientia, um, is what that's all about. But we're in the 21st centuries, we are victims of scientism and the, the dictatorial yardstick that's applied, which is very arbitrary. It's a yard, arbitrary yardstick. And, you know, I talked about, we talk about medicine here, but also in physics, for example, because Werner Heisenberg and others were coming along in the 1920s and questioning measurement within physics. And coming up with theories which would lead to what's now known as quantum entanglement, which Einstein, for all the great things that he contributed to science, but in this case he was an error, but he derided that as spooky action at a distance. And I used to know the uh, German phrase, and I don't have it right um, at my fingertips right now. It's, It's kind of eloquent in German, spooky action at a distance. And he was rather appalled by this concept of quantum entanglement, which is that there's this uh, force which is outside of the known universe, at least as as how we measure the universe. And so uh, uh, Einstein's uh, perspective, his view of uh, his disparaging view of quantum entanglement held uh, force for many decades until 1998 
when experiments began to be shown, and in fact, the, uh, the Nobel Prize this year was given to three of the uh, men who were instrumental in, quantum, in confirming quantum entanglement and then using it. Um, and and uh, PBS did a very good documentary on that, uh, on, on how uh, quantum entanglement was, was proven using um, star systems on the other side of the cosmos and it's, it's interesting, I recommend that to you. And so here's Fort early on, again in the 1920s, I'm not sure he was aware of Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg, and others who were connected with it. There's a whole school there connected with this. Not necessarily anti-Einstein, but certainly opposed to Einstein's dismissal of this. So you take the Fortean openness to how are we going to measure something? You know, How are we going to measure history? And it really means that you really have to fulfill what most historians say is their vocation in life. You know, I'm coming, I'm, you know, they tell you whoever it may be, whoever your favorite establishment historian is who sells, you know, 50,000 or 100,000, you know, books a year. It's, it's taken me since uh, some of my books, like They Were White and They Were Slaves, The Untold History of the Enslavement of Whites in Early America, I think it's taken us, you know, close to 25 years to sell 50,000 copies of those, you know, and they sell those in a year. But not all of them are frauds either, you know, but uh, quite, very many say, you know, I, I, I don't have any bias here, you know, and, and actually they do. And of course, all of us are subjective to some degree, do. We have to try to have enough self-awareness to say, wait a minute, I'm not being faithful to the... Uh, to the historian's creed, which is to follow a trail wherever it leads. And that can be very subversive of one's reputation and career. And that's why there's so many incentives to pose as a person who does that, as a scholar who does that, and then actually uh, not engage in that because of fear of uh, loss of money and one's good name. I'm most curious about where we see the most flagrant examples of dogma superseding the documentary record. And again, to go back to Elizabeth I, for example. So she has Mary, Queen of Scots, executed uh, in uh, 1587 and sanctioned by, you know, she signs the death warrant. And it's on the basis of that there was a plot. This is always what they do. So, you know, she's trying to kill, uh, she's trying to have, uh, Queen Elizabeth assassinated. If, uh, Elizabeth would never execute her based on her religion. Oh, perish the thought, you know. And so this movie, uh, the, the sequel uh, that I've been talking about, Elizabeth, the Golden Age, that's all centered on that, that basically Mary, Queen of Scots, was an airhead and she was being used by these uh, wicked Catholic Jesuits uh, in this plot to uh, assassinate Elizabeth. And there's that's a very thin uh, proposition historically. And, but what I'd like to take up today is, is the fact that when people call Elizabeth a bastard, and, and it's often in these teleplays, you know, it's, it's again some, uh, some Spaniard who's maybe not, uh, the way they choose the actor is maybe not the most attractive looking person and Spanish people are beautiful people, and they, you know, and, they, and yet they pick somebody that maybe isn't the most handsome or, or the most, uh, you know, that we associate with some standard of pulchritude. And then they have that person saying, 
she is a bastard, a heretic and a bastard, you know. And meanwhile, Elizabeth, when she's talking about Catholics, you know, I will not punish my subjects for their beliefs, only their actions. Well, <laughs> you know, that's a little troubling too. You mean like when they try to go to mass and you find them, you know, the equivalent of what would be today, $10,000. And then if they can't pay the fine, you throw them into prison and they get what was called back then jail fever because the prisons were uh, monstrously unhygienic and filled with rats and basically a death sentence to go in there. You know, So in the case of Mary, Queen of Scots, Henry VIII had a legitimate wife, and that was Catherine of Aragon. Now, I know that there's a huge dispute about that, okay? But let me cite one factor here. Tyndale, all right? William Tyndale, who was hunted down at the insistence of Thomas More, who, as far as I'm concerned, despite the fact that he died uh, very heroically, I certainly take my hat off to him for the fortitude with which he faced his execution uh, for his conscience that he could not uh, uphold the idea that Catherine of Aragon was not Henry VIII's legitimate wife. So that was a very fine moment of his. But the movie A Man for All Seasons is as, um, is as silly as these uh, movies by uh, Shakar Kapoor and Michael Hurst about Elizabeth, uh, portraying him as a uh, some kind of, you know, Elizabethan hippie or, or liberal or something like that. Uh, there's no way Thomas More believed in the rights of conscience. He believed that there was a dogmatic truth and you had to conform to it. And if you didn't, that was a major problem. The Protestants believed the same thing, even though uh, you know, most of them are portrayed as being these dissident nonconformists. The vast majority believed the same thing. And so uh, you had a Thomas More uh, portrayed in this manner when actually uh, he was uh, definitely mainly responsible for the uh, death of uh, William Tyndale because he felt that it's presented that he that he had Tyndale burned because Tyndale uh, published uh, a Bible, translated a Bible without the permission of the Pope. Actually, actually the reason was is that both the papacy and Thomas More, who was certainly a leading intellectual and, and had a command of uh, the languages involved, um, uh, believed that Tyndale had inserted erroneous an erroneous translation. In other words, that he had falsified the word of God. And that's a much more serious charge. But I think that today we would understand that that's highly debatable and was a subject of uh, contention the reason I bring this up is William Tyndale, who was you know no papist and no supporter of Catherine of Aragon in terms of her religion, said and upheld undoubtedly that Henry VIII was legitimately married to her, that she was no adulteress or you know uh, what Henry with his lusting for Anne Boleyn had just decided that you know he had to get rid of his lawfully wedded wife. And most of the Christian world stood against him on that issue. And then what happens to Anne Boleyn? Well, whether it's trumped up charges or not, Anne Boleyn is said to have engaged in uh, numerous adulteries. Um, this is Cromwell uh, as the main engine of her prosecution. And we'll be talking about Thomas Cromwell in a future broadcast. Cromwell either engineers or she actually is guilty of these numerous adulteries and then she's executed, and then Elizabeth is declared, her, her little baby daughter is declared 
a bastard. And also it's interesting that Anne Boleyn is presented by the mainstream court historians, as, as we revisionists call them, as a Protestant. And Henry VIII is presented as a Protestant. Well, if you talk to a well-educated Protestant, like typically a lot of Calvinist ministers are, are pretty well-educated, and you say to them, would you consider a person who attends, upholds, and believes in the Roman Catholic Tridentine Mass, the Mass that believes that the body and blood of Jesus Christ are literally present in transubstantiation and being consumed by the believer, would you say they're Protestants? And of course, you know, I mean, they'd say absolutely not. You can't believe that and be a Protestant. Now, Luther believed something like that and called it consubstantiation, but in the mainstream of Protestantism and even inside Lutheranism after Luther, the, the Tridentine Latin Mass, uh, in other words, the Mass of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance as codified by uh, Pope uh, St. Pius V, uh, is certainly not something that any Protestant can take part in. And Henry VIII went to two Masses a day in many occasions, always upheld uh, the Mass, the Latin uh, Mass, similar to, it wasn't actually the Tridentine Mass at the time he was alive, but it was it was, it was virtually indistinguishable from that. And Anne Boleyn died a Catholic as well. Whatever doubt she may have had, whatever correspondence she involved herself in. And um, there's no strong indication that she was, uh, that she was a Protestant. And it, to me, that's just interesting that she's always presented as a, as a Protestant. But so Mary, you know, as I said earlier, she had a strong claim uh, to, the, to the throne, and it wasn't just in Catholic eyes, because Elizabeth's birth in, in 1533 to Anne Boleyn, and following Boleyn's execution three years later, it results in the annulment of Boleyn's marriage to Henry, which is also what uh, Henry was seeking from the Pope. The Pope at that time was Clement VII, and uh, a, a Medici Pope, by the way, who we will have more to say about in future broadcasts, um, as well as uh, his relative, the first Medici Pope, Leo X. Uh, he sought, you know, Henry sought the annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. And then now that he was uh, head of the, uh, the church in England, he was able to get uh, his puppet Cranmer to annul his marriage to Boleyn. Well, that makes Elizabeth illegitimate. And she was formally declared a bastard by her own father uh, in, the, uh, in the Succession Act. So thereafter, her claim was illegitimate. And, and there's every reason for Catholics to see her as a tyrannical, Protestant, heretic bastard who was depriving Henry VIII's legitimate heir, Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots, of her rightful English crown. You know, that's the other side of the story here. For, for us, for revisionist historians, when you think about Edmund Campion, and we'll, we'll do an episode on Campion, and, and he's well worth studying, a fascinating uh, person, uh, such a decent Christian. And Campion alone can nail uh, Elizabeth's hide to the door of, of uh, historical iniquity. And uh, also, I have people quite often, you know, I've written two books in the, um, about the cryptocracy, as, uh, as Walter Bauer first, I think, popularized that wor word, and then I've seized on it since then. 
uh, in my book, Secret Society and Psychological Warfare, and then my 2021 book, Twilight Language. And I have many people who are in the um, conspiracy theory movement who will come up to me and say, well, you know, the Jesuits are the, uh, are the main uh, villains of history. You know, and you're almost relieved when uh, you hear that because you think, okay, finally, I've got a conspiracy theorist who doesn't say that it's the Jews who are the main villains of history. So it's a relief almost. I mean, of course, scapegoating, you know, substituting one scapegoat for another is not actually anything admirable. But I almost breathe a sigh of relief because you can sometimes work better with people who are hateful toward the Jesuit order than you can with these dyed-in-the-wool Jew haters who quite often are not amenable to reason uh, in terms of just following this line of uh, Judaic, for example, Judaic control of the economy, you know, the Rothschild bankers and everything. Well, the Rothschilds, I think, did do a lot of damage in the 19th century. Um, so did J.P. Morgan. Um, but the Rothschilds were not a factor when usury entered and entered the economy of the West in the Renaissance and was institutionalized as a result of that. And that trail goes back to Catholic nominalism. And it goes back to the Fugger banking house, two, two big Catholic banking houses. When Rothschilds were, you know, whatever the Rothschilds were doing in the uh, early 1500s, uh, it certainly wasn't controlling any banks. Uh, and, you know, here's where even Ezra Pound goes off the rails because he basically starts his history of usury and, and financial crimes with the Bank of England and uh, Protestant malefactors and miscreants in Amsterdam or, or London and overlooks the Renaissance. And in fact, I've actually found some information on Pound where he supported uh, the Medici so-called charity banks, the, the uh, Monte di Piatta which actually were frauds, claiming to be allowing some interest on uh, money in order to help the poor, which was kind of how the, you know, the camel's nose under the tent in terms of getting an opening for the crime of usury and, and, the, and an opening for the money power to take over the West and take over the, uh, the Church of Rome, actually, in terms of buying offices. You have, this, you have these anomalous factors here about finance, and so the Jew haters will come along and, uh, and they don't know anything. They're ignorant, just like, you know, left-wing people will be ignorant about the fact that, you know, the massive history of, of the oppression and enslavement by capitalism of white people. And, I mean, the, the root of the word slave comes from the Slavic word. Uh, Slav. I mean, it, it, that's they were they were they were known as a hereditary race of slaves, and I've tried to point out to uh, historians and so forth that labeling black people as a hereditary race of slaves is not only lowering their self-esteem and destructive of their psychology and their spirituality; it's also wrong. It was the white race that was the. In the, in the notions of the time, I'm not saying it's actually true, but they were so widely enslaved in the late Middle Ages by the Vikings, for example, uh, the Northmen, that they became synonymous with slavery. And so, and then when, with the rise of capitalism, that continued. But that's, that's in my book, They Were White and They Were Slaves, and a book I'm working on currently, The Ruling Class War on Poor and Working Class Whites. 
Um, so there's a lot to say about that. But all these anomalies, you see, all these things that throw a monkey wrench into our preconceived notions, the people who are attracted to my work share my fascination with these things, and I will follow that anywhere because it's curiosity that's leading me there, and also, God willing, that I'm following truth in history, which would be something that would be in line with my own Christian convictions as well. Because, uh, you know, Jesus said that he was uh, born to give witness unto the truth. So that's the vocation of both the Christian historian and hopefully all historians. My enemy is ideology, not people, okay? Rather than these ad hominem attacks, which are so popular today, and I've certainly been um, you know, targeted by ad hominem attacks as a as a uh, instrument of intimidation to get people who don't even listen to Hoffman. You know, because they fear that if someone listens to me for a long enough time, they might find that I'm not the devil incarnate. And so the the purpose is that to make sure that people are frightened of listening to me. That you'll be that there's a contagion, and you'll receive a contagion from listening to Hoffman. To me, it's fascinating that you know you have this fixation on. Judaic control of money, but people miss the fact that these Gentiles operating the Catholic banks, of course, they weren't really Catholic because they were usury banks, but once you got a Medici Pope, I mean, this is the dynastic, not only banking family, but also occult family because uh, they're, they're sponsors of the occult infiltration of the church. Uh, beginning with Plethon's appearance at the Council of Florence. Again, this is in my book, The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome. And so people are ignorant of all of this and ignorant of how these Gentile banks shaded their usury by putting up to the front of our focus and attention what few Judaic people there were who were involved in usury. And by the way, the Judaic people who were involved in usury were not violating their religion because the Old Testament says that usury is a weapon of war and it can be used against hostile aliens. And that is the Nokri in Hebrew, N-O-K-R-I. Whereas Catholics and all Christians cannot be usurers. But of course, for example, an Old Testament Judaic people can charge usury as a weapon of war against their enemies, but they cannot charge usury to their fellow Israelites. Okay, that's not allowed in the Old Testament. And so Christians who are following both the Old Testament and the New Testament are doubly proscribed because, for example, Psalm 15 asks the question, who is the godly man? And it says in Psalm 15, if you have an honest translation, and not all English translations render it accurately, he who does not charge interest on money. That's the godly man. And then in the New Testament, Jesus expanded in in Luke 6. He then expands. So whereas in the Old Testament, usury was allowed against one's enemies, and then Jesus says in Luke 6, that you, t- you take no interest from anyone. He expands it out from anyone whatsoever. And, and I recommend reading that passage. It's an absolutely beautiful passage in Luke 6. It's around, it starts around, I think, uh, uh, verse 30 and goes up to about 36 or 38. 
very important. And Christians are all violating that. Wherever money is being rented, even at 1% interest, they're violating uh, God's law. Why did God establish that? Well, I'm not God, but I would give my opinion that he wanted, he didn't want his people to be slaves to the capitalist money power. And the capitalist money power is 99% dependent on compound interest. I mean, how do you think these hedge funds rule our world and, and the hedge fund managers rule over us? And until we outlaw the renting of money at any rate of interest, we will be ruled over them. And God did not want us to be serfs and slave for life uh, in debt. And you know, and people have come up with all kinds of man-made solutions to this, you know, and and they've never taken up the divine solution to it. I mean, seldom have they done so. Certainly, they did under medieval Catholicism, and then that was all split apart in Renaissance. <clears throat> and so, it was to the benefit of the uh, Catholic uh, usury banks to scapegoat the Judaics as being the pioneers in institutional banking in the West when actually it was these many, I know I'm mentioning the Fuggers and the uh, Medici, but there are also the Strozzi and many others based in Florence and then uh, other parts of Italy and, and Germany as well. And so returning to the idea about the Jesuits, and so I'll have uh, a conspiracy theorist who doesn't um, scapegoat Judaic people in this regard, but says, basically scapegoats the Jesuits. And then says, come on, Mr. Hoffman, you have to agree they're behind most of the evil. And uh, yeah, you know, there were evil Jesuits. There's no question about it. And and some of them were operating in England. And, and because the problem with the Jesuits is begins with Ignatius of Loyola, because he established his Society of Jesus as being the most blindly faithful to the papacy of any... Uh, fraternal brotherhood in the Catholic Church. And that's absolutely contrary to scripture. Papal olatry. He's, he taught, and it, again, I it's in my book, The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome, the documentation is there, that he said, if the church teaches that something that is white is black, we must believe that it is black. Well, if you're proceeding from that premise, you're in a lot of trouble. Okay. I mean, you know, it's patent. However, in spite of that fact, okay, in spite of that fact, the Jesuits did some tremendous good. In, in, in the history of the American West, for example, <clears throat> these cowboy movies <clears throat> don't usually show Catholic missionaries in the degree to which they pioneered Christian missionary efforts in the American West. Cowboy movies, for for some reason, typically show, unless it's set in Mexico or along the Texas-Mexican border, it typically shows a Protestant church with the parsonage and the parson, and it's rarely a Catholic priest. And yet, in the history of the West, the Jesuits were quite often the first ones there to mediate between the Indians and the settlers and pioneers and cowboys. And usually, they did a, a great job of protecting the uh, Native Americans. Uh, certainly in Idaho, around Cataldo, the Jesuits uh, did that. And in fact, there's some suggestion that uh, uh, the, you know, the Jesuits were definitely friend, friendly with the Sioux chief, uh, Sitting Bull. And it's even been said that he wore a rosary into battle that was given to him by the Jesuits 
when uh, he defeated Custer. You know, there's a lot more, many more facets and dimensions to the Jesuits than simply the wrong-footed ideas of uh, Ignatius. And also the kind of tortures that they endured, uh, especially among the Algonquins, the Hurons, uh, you know, in New York and Canada, to bring the gospel to the uh, Native Americans in that area are also very heroic and admirable, absolutely. When people tell me that the Jesuits are, you know, all, you know, almost without exception, wicked and evil and conspiratorial, then I confront them with the issue of Edmund Campion, because Campion was among the most renowned of all Jesuits. He should actually be better known outside of the Jesuit world but deservedly renowned among the Jesuits themselves because he was a beautiful soul. And in my own study of Edmund Campion, I believe that he was set up to be killed in Elizabethan England by elements inside the Jesuit order. And and so, um, and somebody could say, well, there's more proof about the uh, perfidy of the Jesuits, but I think that that was, I won't say specifically a renegade faction, but it definitely was a faction from the research that I was able to excavate. So I'm not willing to say that it was actually the heads of the Jesuit order itself, but you can read my study. It's uh, one of the 122 issues of our Revisionist History newsletter, which you can find on our website, uh, www.revisionisthistory.org. I am a professional historian. It's rather miraculous because I'm banned by just about everybody you can imagine. The Wikipedia Encyclopedia article about me has for several years been run by my enemies. You know, I, I, it's kind of um, mind-boggling to think that, like, you know, imagine the Encyclopedia Britannica has an article about um, a Noam Chomsky or something, and, uh, and the people who write it are committed uh, known uh, haters of Noam Chomsky. And so uh, the Wikipedia encyclopedia entry is so jaundiced, it's beyond belief. I've had um, some people come to me, um, a friend of mine uh, who's a uh, executive uh, and a very accomplished person with computers and writing, he said, this is outrageous. And, and he knows all the, because the different Wikipedia editors that I've tried to bring up, the, the bias and the vitriol in the so-called encyclopedia article have usually hung me up on the minutiae of technics. Well, the corrections that um, people who um, believe that this article is unfair, your friends, they say they're my friends, but actually they're just the friends of uh, objectivity. Well, they didn't, they didn't word it properly and they didn't use the right HTML coding or whatever the... Uh, labyrinthine methods of going on there are, I mean, it's all beyond me. I'm not a, a computer guy. But uh, this particular executive, one of several people who went in and made um, some corrections, also in terms of what's left out, in terms of omission, um, because one of the people who really despises me and and his detestation has run for many years, and, he, and he's been able to still have a tremendous influence over the article, um, it's been his uh, particular bailiwick that all my books are self-published. And in fact, um, you know, the, uh, that's not true. Um, I've had 
the, the uh, Institute for Historical Review published one of my books. And then I did take over uh, with independent history and research. I did take over publishing my books because uh, we could not go to these um, marginal publishing houses. You know, we're not going to be able to be published by Random House or Penguin because of the tremendous amount of uh, thought policing that's going on in the publishing world. And so there's these marginal publishers and, you know, it, it's through no fault of their own because they're small operations. Um, they don't do a great deal of publicity and they maybe give you a dollar a book. Uh, you know, so they sell a thousand copies of your book and you get a thousand dollars. How are you going to be a professional historian on that basis? Whereas when you take control over the sale of your books, you could actually make uh, three or four or five dollars per book. And then that puts you more, you know, in a, um, a sustainable uh, bracket, a uh, financial bracket. But actually, I've had two of my books have been published in Japanese translation by Japanese publishing houses. I have all the contracts that I signed with them. And uh, I have copies of those books. And if people are in Japan, they can order them. And also, I had a book um, translated into French by an Italian publishing house, but, but basically their largest footprint is in France and published in France. Try and find that on Wikipedia. Try and find that I was um, uh, one of the first white people to ever address the Savior, Savior's Day National Convention of the Nation of Islam, the black nationalist group in Chicago at the United Center. Uh, you won't find that there either. You won't find a, a correct characterization of the remarks that I made at that speech, which uh, my enemies in among the thought police have, of course, completely distorted and even lied about. And so that's your Wikipedia article. And so I was doing a program, I, um, a lot of Catholics avoid my book, um, The Occult Renaissance Church of Rome. They, they don't want to debate it. They don't want to advertise it. They don't want to review it. But I had one Catholic host his co-host was a um, Greek Orthodox priest based in England. And we had a fine, I think it was 60 minutes discussion of my book. It was very fair. I appreciated both their criticisms and um, their encomiums. And then apparently at the end of it, the host got a phone call from maybe one of the sponsors of the show, or I don't know if it was his father-in-law, but somebody who had an influence over the host. And the guy broke into a sweat because the person said, well, I just read the article about Hoffman and Wikipedia and he's, you know, he's a monster. You know, what, what are you doing having him on the show? And you know, to the guy's credit, um, he was really in a mess toward the end of the show. But to his credit, he put the thing up for a few days and, and then he took it down and we preserved a copy of it. But I myself am, am banned from YouTube. Um, we were on there for years. We had thousands of uh, views and stuff. And then they decided that I was some kind of outlaw and treated me like a criminal. And you know, I don't mean to complain about it. It's just that these same folks who are behind this stuff, you know, they claim that if they ban you, it's due to hate speech. It's not due to the fact that your information is so revolutionary and radical and provocative and they have no answer to it that it upsets their little apple cart. And that's really what it's all about. It's incredibly petty. And the people who lose are those who believe in the advancement of human knowledge. You know, if it hadn't been for the scientists who overcame the prestige of Einstein 
and went ahead and looked into quantum entanglement, we might not have quantum entanglement today with everything, the magnificent door that it opens to God's creation, all a whole new series of mysteries. And so it really takes defying the taboos to proceed onward. And we're now in an age of cancel culture, of course, where um, you know these taboos are being upheld and they're being guarded and humanity loses out in general. This is Michael Hoffman. I thank you for joining me today. Our website is www.revisionisthistory.org. You'll find ways to order our books and recordings and newsletters there.